They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code INGREDIENTS22. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. Cross-border data transfer, AI principles, tech cold war? Who better to turn to for a deep dive into today's pressing Chinese technology issues than Graham Webster, a digital economy fellow at New America. Graham also runs the DigiChina project based out of Stanford and New America. Graham, welcome to China Econ Talk. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So first off, why care about China and digital? Well, the obvious answer is that it's a huge uh, set of issues at the center of economic ties between the two countries, security around the world. It's central to the way that Chinese and U.S. and other countries' societies are going to change. Um, there's really no more, you know, sort of changing or confusing area that I know of uh, than uh, the nexus of China digital technology, connected technology, and U.S.-China relations. And that's where I work right now. It's like a fun special power uh, that we get to have as people who aren't, you know, engineers or, um, you know, real AI experts or whatnot. But having that window into China and speaking Mandarin and reading primary sources, like, makes us useful in this conversation, which we'd otherwise just, like, you know, have, like, Tom Friedman levels of, of insight to. So it's a fun edge to have, for sure, being able to be part of such conversations. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the Tom Friedman reference is funny because, you know, when I was in high school, I was a little journalism nerd and I had a subscription to the New York Times and I'd carried around and I was that kid. And I thought Tom Friedman had the best job you could think of. Um, and it took me a few years. You know, that was a while ago, too. He was a different Tom Friedman. But it took me a few years to <laughs> kind of realize that he was dumbing things down or maybe misrepresenting them. And I think that there's this collapse going on in the traditional journalism field that's leaving a lot of gaps for people who do journalism adjacent things. And I'm really kind of inspired by that. I, I was a journalism major in college. And I, I think getting good information to the public in ways that are digestible by people who need it is really, you know, a basic public good. And, and it's something that in this particular case, I have turned out to be a uh, student of China and technology policy and, and U.S.-China relations, uh, and that's what I'm trying to do. Great, Graham. So thanks for the thanks for the the smooth transition. So why don't you introduce what DigiChina is? And a number of former China Econ Talk guests are up to at uh, New America plus Stanford. Yeah, well, so DigiChina is a it's fundamentally a collaborative project. Um, we have contributors from more than two dozen different organizations uh, so far. The core things that we do are translation of uh, primary sources on Chinese digital policy, so a lot of laws and regulations and some of the political discourse, authoritative speeches and, and this and that. And then we try to put it in context and provide analysis uh, that's hopefully timely and actually makes things easier to understand. Um, and with the Stanford, uh, the new partnership with Stanford, I think we're going to be able to get a little bit more in depth and engage with people in different scholarly disciplines and, and uh, you know, hopefully provide a broader view or a more theoretically informed view in, in some other types of content. Uh, but it really came together organically. So are you open for pitches? How should uh, people reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're resetting a little bit the way that we are handling pitches. It used to be, you know, it started with a few of us on email. Uh, somebody would find that a new regulation or draft law was published, um, and then people would split it up to translate and we'd put it on somebody's blog. Um, now uh, we've outgrown that in terms of the number of people who are on the email list. So um, 
People can reach out to me directly, uh, Webster at newamerica.org, if you're interested in pitching or contributing in one way or the other. So one of the great things you do that you just mentioned is put out a lot of uh, high quality translations. And as someone who spends a few hours each week doing his own translations for chinaecontalk.substack.com, which you should all subscribe to, I have to say it can get a little tedious. And especially when you're doing this, this sort of thing you guys are doing with regards to these draft regulations. But thank you for, for really doing God's work. Before we jump into uh, a few of the specific ones, do you have any general tips for reading Chinese regulations? You know, what's there to look out for? What should people disregard? And how to, how to you know, through the words, see, see, see change over time? Yeah, well, so there's kind of a tension in the project that we've been building, which is that we really believe that it's useful to, for people who don't have uh, Chinese reading skills to be able to read the original sources. But you know, as with any legal system, just reading the kind of original legal text is not going to give you the full picture. Um, sure. So you you have to kind of get into the weeds a little bit, um, look at the analytical uh, work that we do or that various law firms do out there, and then kind of take that in the context of these legal texts. Because, I mean, the fundamental thing is in the Chinese system more than some other ones, uh, you know, just because something is on the books doesn't mean it's really the active legal uh, principle out there. I mean, there's all sorts of human rights that are acknowledged in Chinese law and, and constitution that are not uh, obviously very well respected. So, you know, you have to take the stuff seriously, but also keep in mind its context that it isn't, uh, you know, to be taken literally or absolutely. Sure. I mean, you write that the full story, however, lies in how those documents combine with the realities of enforcement or not, and informal arrangements with market participants may reach with regulators. So there's definitely more going on than just the laws on the books, which is certainly true um, in the American context as well, but um, particularly so when you're when you're talking about mainland China. I'm curious, though, there's sort of a continuum when it comes to translating, where maybe like a technical manual, if you translate it literally, you can get 99% of the of the meaning. If you're doing, you know, like Li Bai or some, you know, Song Dynasty poet, you're going to have a really hard time capturing what is in the text. So I'm curious, you know, what percentage or where do you think translating uh, legal Chinese fits on fits on that continuum? Yeah, I think it's on the easier side um, because you're in a pretty... Uh, standardized language space, you know, and it's contemporary. So it's both regulated and you're referring to specific bureaucratic actors and terms that are defined or not defined, but at least they're reused. <laughs> so, I mean, from my perspective, I couldn't begin to translate literature, whether it's ancient or contemporary. I just don't have that skill in education. Um, and to some extent, when we started this project, um, I wasn't ready to get into the levels of subtlety that I now think I can handle um, in digital policy. So, you know, like anything else, if you're willing to work in one area of Chinese language or probably other languages, um, you can get familiar pretty quickly with with the lingo. Um, so, yeah, easier, but pretty arcane stuff some of the time. Let's jump into the meat. So cross-border data. What's the big dispute over here? I think last month we translated and, and analyzed uh, new draft rules on how companies or others would have to handle moving personal data across borders. Um, and this is a pretty specific area of policy, but it engages with a bunch of others. It goes back especially to the cybersecurity law in the Chinese context. And this is part of a global trend where various countries are setting up rules to protect data, to protect privacy or cybersecurity or other kind of priorities. And these rules usually apply within a given country. So you'd want to have some assurance if the data that you're protecting are going to go abroad to another country, you know, you want to know that there's still going to be sufficient protection. So that type of principle is baked into the cybersecurity law, which went into effect in 2017. That's related to, uh, you know, people who may not be uh, watching China all the time, probably not listeners of this podcast, but uh, people around the world are more familiar with uh, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation out of Europe. 
Um, and there are similar rules there where, you know, you have to follow European data protection rules in Europe. And then if you're a business who needs to transfer people's data abroad, you have to undergo specific types of, uh, you know, checks or meet conditions or make sure that the place that you're transferring the data to is up to snuff by European standards. So, you know, this it gets into pretty arcane stuff, but... In 2017, when the cybersecurity law came into effect, uh, it was requiring special reviews for transferring data abroad to make sure that they're still protected. But even though this stuff is required in the law, the, the regulations that implement this requirement are not yet set up. Um, so that's where we are now. It's a couple years later, more than two years since cybersecurity law went into effect. Uh, and there's this new draft on how to handle personal data going abroad. And that's only one class of data that are being regulated now. Sure. So uh, I recently translated for or the, or the most recent issue of uh, the China Econ Talk newsletter said that this new data privacy issue would actually spell the death of VPN. Um, do you think this logically logically falls out? Or is it more aimed at, at different things than, you know, my personal data that I would put into logging into Facebook or something? Yeah, so I saw that kind of discourse going online and, and talk to a few people uh, back when this new draft was released. I think the VPN uh, fears are not really getting the point. It's probably worth referring back to, I think it was your podcast interview, uh, you know, in this space uh, with uh, Don Clark, uh, the law professor and China law expert. Um, mm -hmm. When you were talking about Huawei and there's this big controversy internationally about, you know, is Huawei required to hand over data to government authorities and help them spy because of this particular provision in a law about espionage? You know, and Clark, who is a much more senior and, and seasoned expert in Chinese law than I am, said something that I agree with, which is, you know, if the Chinese government wants to kind of step on Huawei or somebody uh, to get access to data, they're not going to need this particular provision of law to do it. I think it's a similar case with VPNs and this cross-border data rules. Um, the pretty clear intent behind these rules is to expand on uh, an increasingly detailed regime for protecting Chinese people's data uh, from abuse by companies or cyber criminals or just from breaches due to bad security practices. Um, mm -hmm. It could be read in a way that would make VPNs problematic, um, but there are already other sets of regulations that make VPNs kind of problematic under Chinese law. Um, and as we know from years ago, I mean, when the first time I was living in China in 2007 and eight, um, you know, VPNs would cut in and out due to what we all uh, kind of diagnosed at the time. And I was uh, writing a tech blog for CNET at the time. Um, and so we were watching these things and seeing these these basically technical measures to block VPNs. I, from my perspective, um, this would be a very strange way for the Chinese government to try to cut down on VPNs when they could just go at it directly and say that you know, it's a violation of the principle of cyber sovereignty. And it would be, you know, allowing people to access what are usually called, uh, uh, what's the term, harmful information, uh, right? I mean, Poisonous sometimes as well, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in, the, in the kind of stodgy um, legal discourse, and there's a lot more colorful language out there. But yeah, no, I think that this, this stuff is much more wonky in its nature. And it's really about China setting up its version of the GDPR or of a national uh, personal data protection system. Um, you know, and I, I would just say, I, I keep saying personal data or personal information protection and not privacy because talking about privacy can get a little misleading sometimes with the China case because people think about two main things. One is privacy uh, from the government, which Chinese citizens just simply don't have that expectation, or they shouldn't. Sure. Um, and the other is 
privacy from abuses by companies or platform providers or employees there or people who might hack in um, or your neighbors. And that type of privacy is very much um, being addressed in Chinese regulations. And I think that might be the context where that quote you read about implementation being, you know, the real question. That's where that comes into play. They're building this amazingly subtle and, and pretty coherent personal information protection regime, you know, and they're doing some, uh, some noisy, uh, you know, public enforcement campaigns. But is it enough? Are, are Chinese companies uh, really responding to this and, and treating personal data better than, for instance, Facebook or better than Chinese companies did a couple of years ago? I don't really know yet. I think that's much harder to answer than, than what we do, which is oftentimes to translate the texts and then you know, leave the empirical question to others. Yeah, my my hot take is that, you know, a Cambridge Analytica hasn't happened in China. And it's going to take something Tencent, WeChat related, some big hack on that front for people to really be conscious of this and, and get angry and upset. There have been some pretty ugly leaks, like this website called Jiaopin. I think they had like 100, it's like a sort of like LinkedIn, like monster job application site. They had 150 yeah thousand uh, resumes leaked but you know these are still relatively narrow as opposed to you know what it took in the u.s which was like an epoch making uh, election swing and whether or not it was uh, the fault of facebook the fact that half of the country thinks that there's some culpability there definitely raised consciousness so um you know i don't know if that could happen if that story would be allowed to be discussed in a way to make people more um yeah that's uh, the question right i mean currently are I mean, there could have been a huge breach that we don't know about, right? I mean, I think the, the I'm not totally familiar, but I think the case with the job data breach is that we know about it because it went out on the dark web and people were using it for things. Um, yeah. But, you know, one of the things that's been interesting in watching the uh, discourse around privacy and, and here, you know, following the language used by people commenting in on, in WeChat public posts and uh, on Weibo and that type of thing, you know, there were uh, in the last couple of years, there've been a lot of controversies about, you know, I think it was Robin Lee from Baidu said something along the lines of, you know, Chinese people are willing to trade privacy for convenience. And people online said, Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> no, we'd like our damn privacy. <laughs> like this is, you know, and that may be a minority position. It may be something that only the kind of worked up privacy freaks, um, of which I count myself a member, um, you know, those people may, you know, I may just be reading the, the blog post by those people, but they do exist. And I, I think that, well, I, I sometimes spend some time pushing back on this notion that's discussed uh, in the context of AI competition, that somehow Chinese people don't care about privacy. Um, and I think that's just false. And it may be the case that people don't know what's being done with their data. And that may be a combination of, you know, a lack of reporting or a lack of visibility or also censorship. I mean, the main yeah. information platform for most people these days, at least people who are thinking about how tech works, uh, is probably still WeChat, both groups and public posts. Well, would Tencent like to have a big viral story about how they screwed up? Probably not. You know, I, it's 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 a different information environment from the, you know, radically open U.S. situation of Twitter and Facebook, even as those platforms are working hard to figure out how to balance various priorities, uh, you know, freedom of speech and openness versus, you know, hate speech and uh, terrorism promotion, and then the health of democracies. I mean, nobody knows what to do about this. It's a two-step process, right, in China domestically. First, you need to have uh, something big needs to happen. Um, enough people need to be, or maybe three steps. Something big needs to happen. A lot of people need to be aware of it. And then the government has to decide that, like, okay, this is something we're going to care about and put a priority on. And those and those three steps have a lot of um uh, a lot of a lot of people's minds need to be changed both within and outside of the government for a real kind of sea change in public opinion to to end up impacting government uh, government policy. But but it is interesting just that the, the fact that there are these um, these sorts of regulations which are taking nods from uh, from GDPR and whatnot that are bubbling up through the through the bureaucracies. 
we stay in touch with some of the people who draft these uh, regulations, especially in the personal information space. And the comparison with Europe is very intentional. In part, GDPR is, in a way, uh, a global best practice right now. It was a leading legislative effort on data protection, at least among really major economies, right? But from the Chinese business perspective, there's also value in being interoperable with other markets. So if several countries around the world are following GDPR's lead, and that seems to be the case in some ways, I'm not an expert there, but I've talked to some people who, you know, follow some of these patterns through different countries, you know, Tencent, Alibaba, you know, ByteDance, all the big Chinese platforms would love to be huge around the world. And if they can have a more uh, you know, a smoother compliance transition because the home regime and the uh, regime in, in various other countries is similar, um, you know, it cuts down on costs. It makes it easier to to move fast and innovate and, and try to make a bunch of money. Sure. And there's the other the other aspect of this, which is certainly playing out in the, in the West. And I think Tyler Cowen and co write about this relatively well is that Tyler Cowen and Ben Thompson as well, you know, the more regulation, the more costs for compliance, the harder it is for, uh, for smaller companies to, to, to take bites out of market share from the from the larger ones who already have the lawyers and already have the data centers on staff. So I'm sure that just as that dynamic is playing out in the West in in Brussels and in Washington, it, it most certainly is playing out in uh, Beijing, where the big tech companies don't necessarily want, um, you know, you know, always want to entrench their, um, their, uh, you know, their, their hold on their various marketplaces. But um, uh, so, so now let's turn to AI principles. So, so Graham, for the uninitiated, uh, which includes myself, what are AI principles? So principles around AI ethics or governance are really uh, a major movement around the world right now. And it comes out of what I think of as really longstanding issues with technology, especially data-driven technology and automation. Um, and really, in this case, we're talking about AI, but we're actually talking about pretty advanced or even not very advanced statistics on big data sets involving things that have real relevance for people's lives. So when you're running a platform or a system that makes automated decisions, there are questions about accountability. What happens if a bad outcome happens for somebody or some business and you look back and the cause was some algorithm, right? And sometimes the algorithm is a black box. You don't know how it arrived at its decision. People are concerned also about automation displacing jobs. Uh, obviously, it's a huge issue in politics around the world, certainly in the US. Um, it's definitely part of the discourse in China. Uh, there are a lot of kind of lower mid-skill jobs in China that could be displaced by a real AI revolution or automation revolution. And, and this worries Chinese leaders who, you know, have a large population of people with dreams and, and needs for income and improved conditions, right? Sure. Um, there's security issues with automation. If there's a black box and something goes wrong, you know, why did it go wrong? Or does automation uh, make it easier to break in? Um, privacy can be violated more easily if you have advanced algorithms to piece together different pieces of data and make people identifiable. So around the world, different groupings of scholars or businesses or regulators have been writing up these kind of, you know, pie in the sky principles about what AI should do. And I say pie in the sky because it's a statement of positive intention, but in many cases, the question of what AI is is not super well understood. And in almost all cases, there's literally no kind of enforcement mechanism or accountability for developers or uh, companies to, you know, to fear if they violate these ethics. So, you know, people are kind of trying to impose ethical frameworks and make them current and then give them force through this uh, ongoing discourse and of course, a lot of companies and developers can foresee harms from their work and they want to make it less likely. 
are there camps yet in the West? Like, are there are there different competing theories, or is it or is it still very early days, and and people are 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 mainly just sort of pushing out into into new frontiers and 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 playing around with different ideas? You know, I think there are some camps. I'm not super familiar with all the different varieties. Um, a lot of the documents do look strikingly similar. Which, Seriously, I mean, it's like it's like yeah. we've got like the same the same topic, uh, you know, the same topic headings, the same wording. It's um, uh, it's it's an interesting bit of uh, a groupthink of the um, you know, these like like the the, the policy AI community is is still you know it, numbering in the like the the dozens I think. Um, but anyways, neither here nor there. Yeah, but I mean, I I try to be realistic about how strong these things are, but also, you know, I don't want to be too critical of people who are in early days trying to figure out how to avoid harm and do good because it is early days and, you know, it's hard. So I wouldn't expect everyone to come together and get this right in a super detailed, enforceable way immediately. I showed up in China in June 2017, not knowing much more than Ni Hao. Two months later, I was HSK 3.5, confidently having hour-long conversations and traveling alone in rural Yunnan. By the time I started my graduate program that fall, I wasn't the foreigner who forced Chinese groups to switch into English. In my program, there were plenty of students who came to China with no Mandarin background, but none of them got to near the Chinese level I did, largely because they didn't have the right environment to invest in the basics. So where did I make all this critical progress? At CLI in Guilin, one of the few places that teaches Chinese right, in four hours of daily one-on-one -on -one sessions with engaged and flexible teachers, and in an environment that supports immersion outside the classroom. Unlike in Beijing or Shanghai, you'll be forced to use your Chinese in daily life and won't fall into a friend group of expats. Guilin isn't your average Chinese small city either. As a tourist hub, it's developed enough to provide you with whatever creature comforts you want, from upscale gyms to chill cafes and fancy malls, all while being surrounded by gorgeous mountains and next to no pollution. CLI isn't just for Mandarin beginners, it supports all levels of learning. It's not just for students either. In fact, its median age is 28. To learn more, go to studycli.org and enter offer code CHINAECONTALK for $100 off. Support for this week's show comes from Brattle Street Educational Counseling. Stressed out about college applications? Brattle Street Educational Counseling can help. They provide guidance throughout the whole process and offer workshops for students looking to work in small groups at a rigorous pace. The workshops include hours of one-on-one -on -one attention. From college essays to standardized test prep to interviewing and applications, Brattle Street offers support for any student. Brattle Street, B-R-A-T-T-L-E, street.com. Helping you get where you want to go. So, so Graham, what are the uh, the differences you've uncovered in, in, in how Western principles compare to the Chinese ones? So there's a lot of overlap, um, and it's done intentionally, I think. Yeah meaning scholars are talking to each other. I've been part of some efforts uh, in my previous job working for the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale Law School. I organized a, a bilateral meeting on AI policy, and I, I think some of that might still be going on. You know, people are trying to learn from one another. And it's actually, from my perspective, if American companies and Europeans and say like the NATO people all get together and then have AI ethics, and then maybe they're perfectly enforced and everyone behaves really well and does the right thing. But if you don't also have some sense of the risks that could happen in China or Russia or Israel or whatever, um, you know, the harms to humanity could still be great. So it makes sense and it's positive that people are learning from one another. But there's a difference on the Chinese side in basically the degree to which it's centralized. So one of the first things that we translated as DigiChina was the 2017 uh, New Generation Artificial Intelligence Development Plan. And this was a pretty long document. It contained some really eye-catching ambitions that made a lot of headlines back then, um, specifically saying China should reach world-leading levels as an AI uh, center by I think 2030 was the year that was put there. Sure. And among the things that were in there, I mean, there were all these sort of targets for we're going to develop new 
university programs and different sub industries of AI will, you know, get up to whatever billions and trillions of, of RMB worth of uh, revenue. But toward the end of the document, they get into the policy and ethical challenges um, that are obviously inherent in, you know, staging an AI revolution, um, you know, and bringing advanced automation in ways that we don't yet understand into society. And so there is some sort of baked in Chinese priorities that are defined by that document, which was issued by the state council and drafted by a bunch of people, but especially the Ministry of Science and Technology. Um, so that centralization leads to some strikingly uh, similar language in various Chinese documents. Um, and then there are some things that are just, uh, you know, features of uh, China's digital policy landscape. So one of the new, uh, the, in June, there were two uh, lists of principles. Uh, well, one was principles and one was a kind of an industry statement of a joint pledge, uh, as we translated it on AI self-discipline, right? And the one that was principles, and it was actually released, I think, as a draft. Um, but that one included this catchphrase in a lot of Chinese digital policy, secure and controllable, and saying that AI should be secure and controllable. And this is the same language that is used to talk about making sure uh, key systems don't rely on hardware and software that, you know, the U.S. intelligence community has compromised ahead of time, right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, kind of, but it's a totally reasonable <laughs> concern as, as we see from, uh, you know, what the world learned about NSA and other U.S. intelligence efforts after the Snowden revelations and what the U.S. authorities are pushing the world to think about regarding potential compromise of Huawei and ZTE and other Chinese equipment, you know, it's a real question. You want to be sure that these really central, potentially, you know, life-sustaining uh, or life-threatening automated systems uh, are depending on trustworthy hardware and software and that they can't be sabotaged by adversaries, whether related to the uh, the nation state of a vendor or just regular cyber criminals or terrorists or whatever. So coming back to what you were speaking about earlier about how, you know, these these Western and Chinese academics are actually playing relatively nice with each other when it comes to trying to come up with similar frameworks and whatnot. The irony, of course, being um, that a lot of the Western uh, principles seem actually to be a reaction to what's happening in China with the with the domestic security state. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, so I think there's a couple of dynamics there. And, and one is that um, we've had a lot of amazing reporting about ways that new technologies, some of them are sort of AI related, but a lot of them are still a little more old school um, in terms of surveillance and centralized databases. But anyway, um, data-driven technologies are being used in really uh, chilling ways in Xinjiang, in uh, tracking and identifying uh, individuals for uh, various types of uh, harassment or internment or other huge human rights abuses. So there's this real live example of the Chinese government trying to use high tech in order to more effectively uh, accomplish awful things from our perspective. And that's part of it. And then there's another part, which is that when you are thinking about potential but not yet active kind of techno dystopias in your own society, wherever you are in the world. I think it's a little convenient to imagine them being fully operational already in another society. And so we have this whole discourse around the social credit system, which is it's a mess internationally. There's a lot of false information. Um, there are real concerns about what might occur with that system, but a lot of the reporting uh, that captures people's imaginations um, 
is going where the system has not yet gone in saying that the government is giving everyone a score, which is not true. Uh, it may not ever be true. Um, or in saying that, you know, there's this big AI algorithmically driven uh, system to, uh, you know, to nudge citizens into being compliant through, uh, you know, making them feel that they're going to lose points, right? That's not happening. But that image captures the imagination of people around the world. And then they look at their own societies where yeah. there my is favorite, an okay. My favorite anecdote of that is, um, uh, is uh, I had a friend who went to an AI or like a, a social credit score conference in, uh, in Beijing. And it was a ton of sort of local and provincial level bureaucrats who, who all work on this social credit score thing. And, and one of them from a province which will remain nameless um, sort of got up and was in tears about how hard it was and how you know, no one was giving her any support and the data was so not clean and um, you know, the governor wasn't interested. So definitely um, a, a long way to go on this, um, uh, on this path for sure. Yeah, and I mean, it's a great example of <laughs> the the social credit project it could become a really orwellian dystopian thing but it's not really there yet you know so in the end i think that you know we're having this global discussion and people around the world are realizing uh how unaccountable various institutions and businesses are when they use automation and there's both real things going on in China, especially in Xinjiang, and uh, a bunch of maybe slightly exaggerated or imagined things going on that capture people's imaginations about what could go wrong. But I don't think, you know, I, I really would like it for people to be better informed about the realities of, for instance, social credit, because, you know, there are so many, as my, my colleague Jeremy Dom uh, likes to say sometimes that there are plenty of actual Chinese government offenses against human rights and against the, you know, dignity and, and well-being of Chinese citizens. We don't need to invent other ones. We should focus on what's actually happening. So, but at the same time, some of this imagination is probably inevitable. Um, and, you know, just saying that, uh, you know, social credit system isn't what it's all cracked up to be doesn't mean that people shouldn't be concerned about how uh, automated systems could become uh, tools of authoritarian or otherwise repressive governments uh, around the world anyway, right? I mean, it, the imagination can be helpful in this case. And I, as I kind of said before, I, I try to be generous in assuming people's concerns are, you know, based in a true desire to, to make things better um, as opposed to a, a real malice for China or Chinese people, which some people do have, but you know, I don't think that's the case with the the fears related to AI. I think I think we're all just around the world having trouble figuring out what to do with this shift in power from you know already sort of faceless institutions to faceless institutions with faceless algorithms. So, the tech cold war, uh, Graham, is this is this a thing? <laughs> well. Uh, the, here's something where I've just had a kind of long debate with various people. And I, I've come out strong saying that what the U.S. and China are experiencing right now is not a Cold War. And calling it a Cold War is misleading in an actually destructive way. Um, and so my argument is basically, even though there are some characteristics of what's going on, uh, especially with regards to the potential of decoupling or uh, the increased separation of tech ecosystems and supplier, uh, you know, supply chains. You know, that's similar in a way to what was going on in the Cold War. But I think leaping from there to the Cold War metaphor uh, encourages counterproductive thoughts and instincts, especially among people in Washington and other capitals who remember the Cold War, uh, which was a an us versus them, bipolar, comprehensive, existential rivalry characterized by proxy wars, intense suspicion, 
almost total economic isolation. Now, it's possible that that would emerge between the U.S. and China, but it is not happening now. And I think it should be avoided rather than embraced. So my argument is that what we're seeing now is <laughs> not as easy to put on a bumper sticker and that the Cold War is the wrong way to look at it. So, so what would your characterization be? I'd say that the U.S. and China are reckoning with... Uh, interdependency and the sort of security and economic implications of that um, in a way that they hadn't before. And here, I think the Snowden revelations really moved things on the Chinese side, you know, because there were, it was revealed that various American companies worked with the U.S. government on various uh, espionage priorities. Uh, around that same time, there was this uh, discourse that was emerging in Beijing about, I think it was eight companies, American companies that were really the bedrock of the global internet infrastructure, you know, and these were the kind of Cisco's and Microsoft's and, and IBM's and these big giant companies that you couldn't really avoid uh, at that time. Building an alternative infrastructure that is based not on Cisco, but on Huawei or ZTE is a strategic goal for the Chinese government because we were talking about secure and controllable earlier they can have more confidence in the provenance of the products and maybe in their security. Of course, just because you made it yourself doesn't mean it's better. Sure. But, you know... Yeah, I mean, that, is, that's the know, whole thing with this. Is It's, it's just like the, the Western stuff can be hacked too, but I guess, you know, making it marginally, marginally harder is the idea. Yeah, and I think the, the second layer to it ha, uh, has come up in the last year or so. Um, beginning last year when the Commerce Department targeted ZTE, Huawei's smaller competitor, um, over uh, alleged violations, pretty clearly documented alleged violations of sanctions on Iran and North Korea. You know, and they brought ZTE to the brink of collapse by denying it access to U.S. components. Um, and then the same dynamic emerged with Huawei this year. And so from the Chinese perspective, Dependence on, in this case, it's primarily advanced computer chips. Dependence on those semiconductors from U.S. companies is dangerous if the U.S. government is inclined to use that leverage to try to break Chinese ambitions or to just shut down Chinese companies, right? They, it, it's not going to work out for China advancing economically if the whole economy can be slowed down significantly by order of the U.S. Commerce Department. So, uh, so Graham, you wrote relatively recently about the right way to address market distortion, distortions. If doing, um, you know, full bans on uh, on companies isn't necessarily your cup of tea, what would you um, what would you whisper into uh, Trump's ear? I mean, maybe you whisper some other things besides about um, uh, Chinese tech policy. But what would your what would your um, uh, what would your pitch to the White House be? The first challenge for the U.S. government at this juncture is to get past the relative incoherence of the Trump administration's approach to China on economic ties. And this is across tech and many other things. It's just not clear what the Trump administration's bottom line is. Do they want China to buy more U.S. agricultural products to balance a trade deficit? I'm not an economist. A lot of economists say that this whole issue of balancing a trade deficit is a bit of a fake issue, but Trump likes it. So, you know, that's part of the priority there. And that's one thing that the Chinese side can do to try to placate the U.S. Um, but then you get different kind of approaches. Uh, you get these sort of well-organized demand lists. Uh, I haven't seen the, all the details, but I, I understand that the U.S. trade representative, uh, Robert Lighthizer, and, and his colleagues have led a comparatively coherent uh, set of negotiations. But then you get disagreement on some issues between USTR and the Department of the Treasury or the Commerce Department. It's just not clear, I think, for Chinese negotiators um, what the U.S. wants. So... To me, you know, backing up, I don't have a policy prescription because I don't think we have agreement in the United States on what this is about. Um, 
I want to think about whose interests are served or hurt by the status quo, and then how to, uh, in, in my personal policy preferences, how to uh, make things more equitable for all people. And I'm frankly concerned about well-being of people around the world, but I understand it's the U.S. government's job to look out for Americans primarily. We saw this a little bit with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This isn't just a Trump problem. TPP was negotiated with a relatively high degree of secrecy. There were a lot of corporate interests who were read into various things, but civil society was not. And as it turned out, the Obama administration had trouble getting support in the Senate that would have been necessary to ratify what was a treaty. Um, now, that became irrelevant when Trump was elected and was not inclined to go back on his statement that he opposed it. Uh, Hillary Clinton in the campaign also said that she opposed it. I think she probably would have gone back on that and sought modifications. But my point is that when you have these trade negotiators in the Obama years, at least the administration was pretty coherent among themselves, but they hadn't really sold the whole story to the American people and even to Congress. Now in the Trump era, we have a much more public discussion about this stuff, but it's not coherent. And if you're trying to coerce Chinese officials to change things in the way their economy works, it's got to be a targeted approach and one that is calibrated to what's realistically achievable. So Graham, do you have any uh, recommendations for what best books there are out there on uh, you know, this topic of, of tech and China, and as well as what books need to be written? Well, look, on the books, I, I would say that there are several good books out there on different aspects of things. Uh, and there are several books that are good in part, but, you know, lose me in some other ways. And one of those is the much discussed book by Kai-Fu Lee on AI superpowers. Um, you know, that book does an amazing job of describing the story of China's tech industry development as kind of distinct, but still integrated with tech around the world. Um, but at the same time, he engages in some of the rhetoric about, you know, how Chinese people think about privacy versus convenience that, that I don't really agree with. And I think some of the arguments can fall apart. You know, there's a lot of really good work out there in academic spheres, but these tend to be much more narrow texts. So I, I don't have a a single go-to, um, although we should probably come up with a list of those academic ones and, uh, uh, and, and recommend those for people who want to dive in deeper. Looking forward to the Digitina coffee table book. Uh, Graham, finally, any, do you have a favorite tech word, Chinese tech word? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure about a favorite, but one of, one of the things that we've done uh, with DigiChina that I really enjoyed and that we're planning to do a lot more of uh, is that we did a, basically a little profile of a term that we find hard to translate or that honest, informed translators disagree on. Um, and that term is Wanglo uh, Tiangguo. Uh, so it shows up in a lot of Xi Jinping speeches. And literally, it means network, strong country. Um, the DigiChina canonical translation is cyber superpower. Cyber and network are kind of interchangeable here, and they're nice and vague in the same way that cyber is. But you could really talk about cyber great power. Some people want to make it a major cyber country to avoid this whole IR implication of superpower or great power. I like it because it's a such a prominent term in Chinese discourse about what the Communist Party says they want China to become, uh, but it's hard to describe what it really means. And there's even an irritating translation, and here's the siren coming up. Um, I'll just give it a second. I'm sure you don't notice it, notice it anymore, except when you're like on the phone or recording. Right. No, I, I really don't. Um, you know, when we were discussing the various translations of Wang Lo Tiangguo, um, there's even a way to read it as a uh, 
verb phrase, strengthening the nation through cyber or through, you know, digital technology. Um, and the fact is, if you just read it on the face of it in Chinese, it means all of these things. <laughs> um, and so we get to try to interpret it. And um, I'm really looking forward to doing a bunch more of these because there uh, there are a bunch of other terms. Uh, I wish I had. There's a list that we're building of sticky ones where, frankly, we disagree. And that's the best part of being a collaborative project um, is that we get together on these translations and people come up with multiple reasonable translations of the same term or concept. And then we try to hash it out and pick one uh, and move on. So, um, so, so, so my, uh, uh, my word now is dashuju shashu, which is basically means like big data screwing over your friends or loyal customers. Um, the, the, the implication being like, I take a, a DD home commuting every single day from one place to another. And like, if someone else orders it, it will be 10 quite cheaper, even though, because like the app knows that I'm always going to be going, you know, I, I don't have any other option. There's no, there's no batna for me, but, um, uh, anyways, dashuju shashu. Graham, thanks for being a part of China Econ Talk. Well, thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices podcast, and of course, the Seneca podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut